this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast, we're talking with Kevin Sasser of Argos Risk, a company that is innovating the identification and reporting of business health so critical for many businesses who have to know about what's going on downstream with their best customers, as well as upstream with their suppliers. I think you'll find it fascinating. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Innovation Driven Growth Podcast. Here we examine what enables true creativity, how to convert ideas into innovation, and seek out what ignites enterprise-wide growth. I'm your host, entrepreneur, strategist, and muser of metacognition, David Peterson. All right, well, for everyone out there in the uh, Innovation Driven Growth Reader listenership, we are here on a, a beautiful morning, and I've got the pleasure of having Mr. Kevin Sasser, who is the Director of Sales and Marketing for Argos Risk, with me this morning, and we're going to have a great conversation. Kevin, good morning. Good morning, David. How are things out in, where are you at today, Wyoming? I, I am out in Wyoming. It's just, a, I mean, it's like uh, back home in Georgia, it's insufferably hot. Let's see, you're in uh, Atlanta, correct? Is that I'm where in you Atlanta. are today? So give me, give me, let's get a little temperature check here. It's mid-July. What's your, what's your high and humidity going to be today? I don't have my temperature gauge right at my ready, but uh, it's terms, uh, I'm, my shirt is half sticking to me right now. And that was a 15 minute walk. So if that gives you yeah. a bit of a indicator there. So it was in, is in the low 60 this morning and it might, it might get up to 80 uh, today out here, whatever. So this is, this is obviously why in the summertime <laughs> I come out to, uh, come out to Wyoming. Well, Kevin. Uh, you and I have known each other for for many many years. We uh, we worked together at Goldleaf Technologies for many of those years, and you've gone on to have really an amazing uh, career post Goldleaf. So just to kind of give people a level set, your background, where you're where you've been, and leading up to what you do now with Argos Risk, give us that twenty thousand foot view of Kevin Sasser and kind of what you've done through all those years. Oh boy. Okay. So uh, I put, starts off with I put myself through college working at a community bank while obtaining a computer science degree. So I was well formed to to kind of join the ranks of uh, the fintech industry as it was starting to come into its own in the you know early '90s, and so sort of cut my teeth, third my stripes at Goldleaf, uh, spent uh, close to a decade there learning all aspects of business. And, then went, and I'm going to go ahead and interrupt you right away. We hired you as a programmer. That's correct. That's right. And, and uh, quickly, and, yeah, I was going to say you realized, spent about ten minutes actually. Yeah, I quickly program. realized you made a bad hire for a programmer. <laughs> But uh, in terms of a person who could be client facing and kind of articulated uh, technical issues to the uh, the business acumen, thankfully, I had a little bit of skill in that in that area. So that has served me well since. Indeed. So, indeed. Yeah. Thank you for that bad hire, Dave. I, I don't think I would have hired myself. Um, <laughs> and so post Goldleaf, I uh, did some stints in enterprise sales, had the good fortune of uh, selling systems into the federal government for several years, was quite successful. And uh, just when you think you master something, you want to try something new. So uh, I had the opportunity to uh, join several startups in the Atlanta area and learned a great deal about, uh, you know, running of a business and also, you know, watching the trends of the customers, their needs and, and how to kind of manage the chaos that can be innovation. Uh, today, I have the good fortune of uh, being the Director of Sales and Marketing for Argus Risk. We're a third-party risk intelligence provider, and I'll explain what that means in just a second. And, uh, you know, pre-COVID, I was, uh, I'm was i also a bit of a national speaker. I go around articulating best practices around third-party risk uh, to anyone who will listen, because I think this is one of the most uh, critical areas of an operation of a business. And today, I am good fortunate being on this podcast. That's uh, that's awesome. In fact, uh, just just a little a little uh, way back uh, history. Uh, Goldleaf is a company that I founded back in 1990. Kevin was one of the very early employees. You started with us in like 91, 92. Yeah, I was sixth employee. Sixth employee, and uh, but, but over the years, we just developed I don't know uh, a reputation. Maybe is the right word of having people who were very knowledgeable and very technical about certain subjects, particularly as it relates to electronic banking issues, but who were just fun, engaging speakers. And Kevin was one, along with myself and Lee Weatherington and Kevin Mullen. We were kind of the four horsemen. And if you think back to some of the wacky videos we did and some of the just wild and crazy things we did, how 
would you say that that in any way prepared you for what was to come or was that just all kinds of evidence of what not to do? <laughs> uh, n- number one, uh, anytime that you can make something as dry as regulatory compliance interesting and entertaining, you've hit a home run. Yeah. And so all kudos to you and that before you, you consistently were able to put some level of engagement into these uh, into our efforts. And so to give you a, a context, if I gave you the reg DD of a community bank that they have to comply with and, and read it to you verbatim, I would cure your insomnia in about you know, 45 seconds. But when you take those same major principles and put it to uh, a song like No Sleep Till Brooklyn by the Beastie Boys, all of a sudden you've got every ear in the room. And so that, so from a tactical standpoint, probably some of the most fun I've ever had in a professional setting. From a strategic standpoint and kind of tying into our conversation today, I don't know if you did this will, uh, knowingly, but what you were doing in those efforts is you were making it safe and comfortable for us to have an innovative culture. You you made it safe and comfortable for us to have the confidence to go out and take risk and to do crazy wow. stuff like that. Nice. And so when, you know, when I was uh, thinking about this, it's like, man, if I could only if I could only say one thing, if I had 60 seconds on this podcast, what would it be the thing? It'd be like culture. If you want to drive innovation like that, it has to start with a culture where your people have to feel safe and empowered, engaged to look for those problems because it's going to uh, innovation drives you out of your comfort zone. And if your employees are too scared or too fearful to get sure. out of that comfort zone, you're not going to have innovation. Absolutely. I, I do talk about this in my innovation keynotes about how in order for us to get truly creative, we probably need to think and act more like children. You know, you think about little kids playing on a playground. They don't care about what other people think about what they play. But as we grow older, especially as we go into a corporate environment, there's all of these mores and there's this decorum. And hey, 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 this is this is a professional environment. You know, we're in a bank. We're, we're in a software company. We're in a, you know, in an environment where that kind of goofing around is is not welcome. And it does tend to drive creativity out. And without creativity, there's no innovation. Now, you've spent a significant portion of your career now in sales. You would say that out of your, you know, total career of some 30 uh, uh, years ish or, w- or whatever that's been, a significant portion, 25 at least of those years have been in sales. Is that right? That's correct. All right. Um, so I want to focus in on this idea of innovation because some people, I think, think of sales, just generally sales, regardless of whether we're talking about, you know, third party business health or, you know, uh, uh, you know, s- selling bank software or, or selling lumber or, you know, what it is. Hey, it's sales. There's, there's really nothing innovative happening in sales. But I don't think that's that's really true. How is this sort of idea or sort of bent towards innovation formed the way that you've approached sales, just general selling over those years? Oh, my gosh. Uh, so I'm going to give you a, a personal reference point. Think about the last time you bought a car mm. versus, to, you know, your last, you know, let's say you've bought a car in the last five years versus how you would buy a car 20 years ago. Yeah. 20 years ago, as the salesperson, I owned the educational process of the customer. So the customer had a scant idea that maybe, or maybe they had no idea. But in our first conversation, I was in control of what information they saw, when they saw it, and all that. And that was my role. I was sort of like the educational quarterback, if you will. And today, and kind of switching over to our car analogy, you know, when you go buy a car today, you've done your research as a consumer. You've gone and read the Consumer Reports reviews. You've uh, looked at Google reviews, blah, 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 blah. And by the time you get to the car lot, you are fully educated and you're ready to negotiate. Well, it's in enterprise software. And I'm talking in enterprise software is anything. Let's just use a, a, a base point, $100,000 in revenue and above. So big ticket items. Same experience is happening at that level in the mid-market where the consumers are coming to us more educated. And so the sales process had to evolve from, okay, we're going to skip over in, uh, kindergarten now. And now you're going to be in a, you're talking to someone who's got the equivalent of a high school or college education about wow. your product or services. And our sales process has had to adapt to that. So two things, uh, two things immediately come to mind. Number one is somebody's going out, they're going online, they're doing other research before they're coming to the salesperson. So they, they have this background of knowledge, whereas they were essentially a clean slate before. But then the reverse or the correlative is true where they maybe come to the table with misinformation. They've, they've gone out and they think they know X based on their research, but maybe they're wrong. 
Right. Yeah. And so from a professional development standpoint, you talk about innovation. When I first started in sales, I had to know the widget I was selling backwards and forwards. Now, today I have to know the industry. I have to know the widget industry because oh, when okay. because now they're coming to me and they're not asking me elementary questions. They're asking me advanced questions. Right. right? So my knowledge base has to expand. So where, you know, so if I had to compare and contrast my life as a sales professional from between today and you know, two decades ago, I can tell you every Friday afternoon I have blocked off and I'm reading white papers and researching trends. I'm looking at other parts of the globe to see what trends are happening in risk management in those areas because they may eventually bleed over into the United States. And it's a it's a heavy lift, but that's what we have to do today as sales right. professionals. Right. Interestingly, uh, people know who Warren Buffett is. You know, he has every Tuesday blocked off for a haircut. And, and as you look at a picture of him, his head looks like mine. You know, that guy does not need um, 10 minutes for a haircut, much less all Tuesday. But he, he's got haircut on his schedule because he's doing like what you're talking about. His, he's, he's digging into his research. He's, mm-hmm. he's thinking. He's, he's studying and so forth. So I don't know if Lori Frank, your boss, knows uh, what you're doing on Friday afternoons. But at least we now have it recorded. Oh. Whatever it is you're doing officially, you are researching on Friday afternoons, not doing any other kind of like I'm goofing off or I, I, I can either confirm nor deny those accusations. Let's move on. Uh, let's okay. <laughs> Speaking of Lori Frank, she's the CEO of, of uh, Argos Risk, and you are the director of sales and marketing. So let's uh, full disclosure. I'm on the board of directors of Argos Risk, so I know uh, a lot about what's going on in Argos Risk, certainly. But again, for our IDG listeners, just kind of give them the, the the real quick view of Argos Risk and what it does, so that we can have a basis for continued discussion about what you guys are doing. Okay, so Argos Risk, and if you want to check us out, it's argosrisk.com. We're a B2B services provider, so our clients are businesses. And what we enable our subscribers to do is quickly assess the financial risk and overall viability of other commercial third parties. So what does that mean? That means our subscribers will use our uh, systems to say, okay, can the, the vendor that I'm that I need to sign this million dollar contract with, do they have the means to actually fulfill the contract? Or if it's a commercial lender, can this borrower repay the loan? Do they have the financial means to do so? Or is this supplier that I just found on the internet at a great price, are they actually a front for a terrorist organization? So what we enable, so our clients use our technologies to quickly look at the, the overall viability picture of any commercial third party that they want to extend some level of a relationship with either a vendor or supplier, or it could be a bank lending, uh, making a business loan, or it could be a manufacturer uh, saying, hey, I'm going to give you uh, 30 days to pay this invoice. All right, let me just stop you right there because I want to make sure everybody has this picture. I'm a, I'm a business. I'm ABC company. Mm-hmm. And as ABC company, I have uh, entities who are going to do business with me. They're going to be my customers. And so uh, I'm going to maybe sell them goods and services on, on credit. So they're going to become an accounts receivable to me. So here comes, you know, DEF company and they want to be a customer. I want to check them out and I want to know whether or not this is somebody who's reliable that if I'm going to engage in that kind of relationship with them, they're they're good for their for their payments. Is that fair? That's fair. And then the the other side would be I'm ABC company, but I have organizations who supply things to me. Uh, whether that's raw goods and services that I turn into some kind of product or or you know, whether it's accounting service or what whatever kind of services upstream if it's something that's super critical to my business and I want to make sure that there's a reliable source of that, I might need to know the same thing. Hey, are these people upstream of me, somebody that's really, really, you know, strong, financially strong, I want to do business with them. That's exactly right. And, yeah. and now this is, you know, and so I'm making this decision. So at the time that I'm making a decision, do I bring on a new supplier? Do I bring on a new customer? Now I can use Argos Risk to do that. And then it's, once and done. When, then uh, once I'm done, Argos Risk has served its purpose, and I move on. Well, actually, no. Let me correct you there. So uh, okay. The, okay. The way that uh, and this is called third-party vetting, actually checking out on another business. The way it's done historically is that it's been a one-and-done kind of situation. I'm about to sign a $10 million contract with somebody. Okay, so I'm going to get all this information at the, up front in front of the contract. I'm going to look at it one time. I'm going to sign the paperwork. And then, okay, I did the vetting. I'm protected is the... Signed is the, check yeah, the check I'm signed the off. Checked the, I checked yeah. the box and moved off. Well, things happen. 
right? I don't know, global pandemics happen, supply mm-hmm. chain interruptions happen and all that. So what our system does is it has a, it's an automated platform that continuously checks every single day uh, key financial performance metrics related to that third party. So if you sign that $10 million contract on Tuesday and on Thursday, they're getting sued. They're involved in a class action lawsuit. or And so they stop paying their bills because they're, they're paying their lawyers. If they stop, can't pay their taxes anymore and tax liens starting to pile up. We tell you about that along the way as the events, as they are reported in our system, where historically it was kind of like, I signed the paperwork, I closed my eyes and hope for the best for the next sure. 12 months. Right, right. So this is... So this is something where it is vitally important to do this work up front to know that you're getting into business uh, downstream or upstream with a viable partner. But it's more important that you have some way of monitoring on an ongoing basis. And you and I have both worked for years with financial institutions, and we know that in many cases they're obligated through regulatory requirements to do some kind of vetting uh, on you know loan customers or ACH customers and so forth. And a lot of them do that once a year. They have some annual cycle and they go pull some kind of reports. They ask the company for financial information. They do some kind of underwriting analysis and they go, oh, okay, uh, ABC company's fine. You know, check again, you know, check the box, put the folder back in the, in the file, but they don't necessarily know what happened from last year to now to where, you know, a company might've gone China syndrome on them and managed to, to not and make it back in that time. So you're saying whatever you're checking is every day. Let me just break in here a minute and talk a little bit more about this China syndrome, because it it certainly applies to any business that needs to understand what's going on with the business they're monitoring, which is, of course, what Argus Risk does. But this may apply to your business as well. When we step in and look at something in a periodic period of time, we're going to do an annual review. I work with a lot of financial institutions, and every year they're getting information on loan customers or people who are doing ACH origination. They're looking at their financials. They're maybe pulling external reports from organizations that are are looking at business health. So every August 1st, I'm pulling report on ABC Company, and I'm taking into account all this information. And then I see where they are and, and say, okay, they seem to be healthy. They seem to be good. So from August 1st to the next August 1st, and I do it again. Well, what you don't get in that kind of model is what happened beginning August the 2nd all the way up until August 1st of the next year. So when I reference the China syndrome, what I really mean is the situation where during that year, that company could have faced some real adversity and literally almost bottom out, perhaps even was on the verge of bankruptcy and then managed to claw their way back so that by the time you do the evaluation that following year, August 1st, they actually look okay again. So instead of you in your business and the way that you have to look at certain metrics, if you can set up and and have an efficient way of looking at things on a ongoing basis, in our grocery's case, even day to day, now you can start to spot trends. If in fact this company was going down, 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 it would have been in Very important for you to have taken some action, particularly if it was a huge accounts receivable client of yours or somebody who provides you upstream products and goods that are critical to your business. So this idea of knowing on a more ongoing basis what's important to your organization or perhaps you as an individual versus I take a look and I ignore it and I come back a quarter later or half a year later or a year later and look again, oh, everything's okay. Uh, Ignorance is bliss doesn't work in this kind of business scenario. So just kind of think about that, how that might apply to your business or to you. And so tell me about, uh, because I've seen some of these reports that get generated by some of these things and they're like, I don't know, you know, 10, 15 pages, whatever. I mean, how clean and simple can this be for somebody to be able to look at something daily and go, everything's okay? So that's the, that's the funny part uh, about risk compliance. It's one thing to get the data. It's another thing to understand it. Right. And so I talk to people all the time. Oh, we uh, when we we pulled the financials of the of the other third party. And it's like, do you understand them? Well, yeah, it says financials right at the top. <laughs> it's like, it, it's like it's like well, the financials are point in time documents, and and so and in twenty twenty was you know hopefully we never have to go through that again. But it was a very uh, enlightening year from a risk management perspective because 
companies were pulling financials because it was 2020 and pandemics were shutting people down. The economies were shutting down all over the world. And they're looking at the financials and the date on the financials was December 31st, 2019. It's like, how valuable can that be now? Exactly. Because right. audited financials, for, even for the biggest companies, happen once a year. Right. And they're always a look behind. What yeah, they're always for the previous year. year. Right. Yeah. Wow. So with our daily updating, we were able to give our clients insights so they could understand which of their suppliers and vendors and customers were truly struggling and which ones were, you know, doing okay. Right. There, there are parts of the economy, even throughout the, the ravages of COVID, that were able to sustain and, and keep going. And, of course, there were parts that were just getting crushed. So help everybody understand just this last little part about the, the beauty of how you take all of this information and some 200 plus different sources of information. You bring it all in and you have this very proprietary algorithm that spits out a score, right? Uh, well, a, zero, a zero or one to 100 score. Right. So to give you the illustration of the beauty, it's like if you bought, if you, uh, bought the biggest credit report you could find on a particular company, it might be 40 pages yeah. long. It's going to be, there's going to be no less than somewhere between five to nine different scores on them, measuring different aspects. And the overall credit score is going to be something that says 5A2 as, as a typical example. And so, okay, okay, 5A2. So does that mean 5A3 is better? You know, like, so we take all that off the table. We take on any particular company, we may check a couple of hundred data points. We may check a couple of thousand data points, depending on the size and scope of the company. Okay. And we run those data points through the algorithms. They produce 38 metrics, color-coded, zero to 100 scale, fits on a two-page report. Got it. So so overall, I, I, can, I can look at something in zero to 100. I'm going to guess, just guessing now, that if you were a one, that's bad, and a hundred is amazing. That's correct. That's amazing. And so this is this is the thing when I, when I get the chance to tell people about Argos Risk, I at a very high level say, look, they take all of this other stuff and somehow magically give you this one score. And so ABC Company is an eighty-seven. And so is eighty-seven a good score? It sounds like a good score. Like if you think about your grading in school, you know that sounds like a high B to me. It's a good score. But the real issue is what was their score? So now because you do this every day, you can see a trend. Where if somebody was an 87 and you look back and they were a 73 and they've, you know, kind of, you know, incrementally crept up and now they're an 87, you'd feel really, really good about that versus somebody who was a 95 who seems to be sort of sliding back to an 87, <laughs> right? So 87 isn't necessarily good or bad, but it is super important because you get this daily trend. Are they, are, how are they doing? If they're sliding back, that doesn't mean they're in you know, shape like they're going to go bankrupt tomorrow, but maybe you should pay attention to it. Exactly right. Now, I'll give you two quick scenarios. So uh, I use a mortgage company, particularly for my demos, and um, and I look at them every single day, and they and they were all greens and all their great scores. And then about 90 days ago, they had a bunch of debt just written off. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, overnight, you know, there's, you know, they went to the red, and I'm like, oh, my gosh. Uh, and then and kind of tie this in into the hot topic of the day is uh, cyber. Because, you know, we've all, and, and don't get me wrong, cyber vetting and all that is a, is a outside of our scope. But let me kind of bridge the two worlds just a bit. You know, when you're taking a look at a, the, the strength of a company from a cyber perspective, you have to realize that having a strong cyber management program is a really expensive endeavor. Mm. A chief in, information security officer, their, their salaries are normally uh, in the 200 range, sure. 200,000 sure. range. And then to have the, the the latest and greatest network infrastructure and the protections in place is expensive as well. So you have to have decent financial viability to, to maintain a good cyber program going forward. And more and more professionals in the space are starting to realize, oh, we got to look at the, the root driver of a cyber program is their financial stability. So we're actually seeing more interest right. from that side of the we, One last quick question on the just the general service that you guys offer, and then we'll move on and, and talk about some more innovation stuff. You and I have talked about this before without giving out any specific numbers. I think we would both agree that this is not an expensive service. It's not like companies look at this and, and you, you know, you're asking an arm and a leg. So so it seems like that it's a slam dunk kind of thing that, that people would want to know, especially if you think about, okay, maybe not every customer, but there's a usually a smaller subset of customers that re represent some pretty large 40 to 60% of your accounts receivable. It just kind of makes sense that you'd want to know what's going on with those guys because that's the source 
of your revenue and, and then key suppliers up in. What is it that you find the hardest? What is it that has to happen for you to convince a company how important it is to have this information so they sign up? <laughs> well, they need uh, the easiest clients are the ones who have been burnt. Oh, yeah. They're, yeah. They, they're, they're, they're educated. Yeah, yeah. They know it's they like, need a, They got a headache and they need an aspirin, so they're ready to talk. Right. It's like if you've never been in a car accident, you really struggle to pay car insurance. You know, it's like, what's, mm-hmm. what's so for our clients t- today, prospects, if you will, the ones uh, they're starting, 2020 was a bit of a wake up call across the board. Mm-hmm. And, and I'll give you I'll give you an example that would resonate with you. In 2020, 75% of the businesses in the U.S. economy experienced some outage, either due to COVID or a third party. Wow, that high. And uh, 37% of those outages, and I know I'm throwing a bunch of numbers at you, and I apologize, but 37% of those outages were caused by a tier two vendor. A tier two vendor. What I mean by that, most client, most companies will have a classification system. And so a tier one vendor is mission critical. So if, you're, if you sell ice cream, uh, the ice cream suppliers are a tier one vendor. Tier two might be the trucking company used by the ice cream company. And so 37% of those companies caused outages last uh, year. Okay. And so this is waking up a lot of different industry, a lot of different trade associations. So like the automotive parts of brotherhood or international right. organization, they basically said, Hey, we tell everybody, all of our members should be checking the financial viability. So that the, the whole yeah. awareness of this is, uh, uh, been driven by uh, pandemic and global uh, and global pressures, and along with regulatory compliance. Got it. Got it. Oh, that makes perfect sense. So, you know, I know uh, as I've been associated with Argos Risks, whatever, whatever, you know, years and years ago when the company started, the idea about what the service would be and and how that would actually serve, you know, relative to to this idea of third party business health, whatever, isn't exactly what you're doing today. So, to, you know, to the extent that you've been a part of this. Talk about that innovation journey. So a company starts out, they've got an idea about a product or service, but you know, sometimes you have to make some pivots. You have to be thinking innovatively about what it takes uh, either in the actual service itself or maybe how the service is delivered and, and, and whether or not somebody is consuming what you're doing as a web-based service versus some kind of API or integration with it on the back end. Just talk big picture about how innovation is played out in these sort of Argos risk twists and turns. Yeah, it's a couple things. If, if Regardless of how many uh, podcasts you listen to or, or books you read or whatever, it's, this is not easy uh, because there are, it, there's a lot of gray areas involved. And so what we we start off with is our core values. What is, what is our mission as a company? And that really will help keep us grounded and keep us from from going off on tangents, which can be detrimental. I mean, we deal with thousands of organizations on a daily basis and each one has their own unique needs and each one has some little idea for a new little widget and all that jazz. And we have to have a process for filtering out the noise. So we start off with who we, who are we as a company and who do we want to be as a company? Then we think about our primary customers, not the one-offs, but our, the, the customers who helped our company grow to where we are today and with this proposed innovation make their lives better right and and without sounding cold is this problem big enough for them to actually exchange value for it will they pay mm-hmm. us more money or will they retain their contract with us a little bit longer if we have this you know this innovation where you'll get thrown off in in innovation if i could just you know words of caution from my previous experience working at other startups is if you get a, a customer that you really have a close personal relationship with and you start talking to them and they will sell you on this idea, then you get into the weeds and all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, I wasn't going to pay for it. I thought you just could give that <laughs> right, to me. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. right. We, we've even had some examples of that back in the, the Gold Leaf days. If you remember items, uh, we, mm-hmm. we were going to have this items expert that, um, uh, that Mr. Kevin Mullen actually did an amazing job of designing, uh, but unfortunately there was not anybody who wanted to pay for it. Yeah, we did everything right except acquire the customer. <laughs> you know, yeah. and if we were the only team that made that mistake, I'd let you know. But when I got involved in the Atlanta ecosystem, that was a daily thing. That was, yeah. you know, because like uh, Atlanta has five different startup accelerators and I was, had the good fortune to be involved in one of them. And, you know, we get together and we network and all like that. And, and that was the most common conversation. It was like ne- chasing the next shiny thing. Sure. And I, uh, yeah, you I, have to 
Get, stay grounded. Kevin, this is a great point, and, and I want to explore just a little bit more. So at Gold Leaf, we kind of set what I termed like riverbanks. You know, so you think about a river, it's got a left bank, right bank, and you mm-hmm. can navigate all the way, you know, all you want. But if you're in a boat, you don't get to go any more left than the bank. You don't get to go any more right than the bank. And, and so we would at Gold Leaf, we would sort of say, here's who we're selling to. And when opportunities would come that would be you know, significantly outside on the, the right or left banks, we would just simply say, hey, that's not for us. Here's this, here's this opportunity over in, in uh, Europe or Africa. It's like, hey, we're a little small company. We're, we're not running over there, but, but we can go down to the Caribbean. Or, you know, there, there were a number of different times when we said no to folks. And, and, and I think that may be one of the hardest, one of the most innovative things that a company can do is really figure out what that focus is and then say no to customers that are going to divert them. You All of a sudden, you're way off in left field somewhere. Now, I've switched from a boating to a baseball metaphor, sorry. <laughs> but but, but you're, you're spending a lot of resources, you know, putting all this in over here. And to your point, are you going to make a lot of money doing that? Uh, you know, so so this idea of saying no, is this is this something that Argos risk? I mean, are there literally customers that come that want you to do some you know, kind of out there outside the riverbanks things. And you guys say, no, this is, this is our lane. This is our, this is, you know, this is where we, this is where we play. I mean, almost on a daily basis, because as we've grown and moved upstream to larger and larger organizations, the demands have become uh, more frequent, frequent and more common. And so um, you just, we're getting a lot of requests for country specific data. Hey, in Out, Fran- outside of the United States, outside of the United States, and France, France has these certain levels of extra due diligence mm. that are not common across the EU. And so we're going to get, hey, can you guys go check these data sources in France? And we're mm. like, how many people will this impact? How right. much was this? You know, how much is going to cost to develop? Can we do it? And here's a here's a little trick that I use in uh, is can we develop a low cost or no cost prototype for a, a, sure. if you could. If just you can do, I mean, it, just a concept. Is it is it possible to develop a low cost or even a non-functioning prototype that we could send to somebody and, and get some type of feedback for? And if the answer is no, then that uh, that innovation is either denied outright or it's uh, postponed and, and until a broader team can take a look at it and, and, and weigh the merits. Yeah, I got you. Interesting. So I don't want you to give away uh, all uh, secrets. You know, you have competitors and they may uh, they may listen in to the podcast. So don't give away any future secrets, but just sort of fast forward five years and think about maybe at a high level, what what is this industry? What is your industry going to pivot to? Where will this go relative to this bigger picture of business health and how important it is for monitoring, you know, downstream customers, upstream suppliers um, and, and, and what might be different even outside of this idea of expansion of the United States for data? Where, where does this go in five years? What do you see Argos Risk doing? Oh, boy. All right. So just in general, I'm going to kind of put a fence around this and just this is my commentary on the business. By the way, uh, we now expanded to the third third metaphor of that. Yeah. 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 yeah, Okay. I think there's a there's a just keep in count three metaphor minimum (laughs) here. So you think about the business environment today and the all the pressures on on a particular business. So, you know, a a bad tweet now can ruin a company. Right. And so the, the need to really be cognizant of who you're doing business with from a B2B standpoint is just, it gets more intense every day because you inherit the reputation of your partners, right? So if you, if you're, if you made it known that you're doing business with ABC company and all of a sudden the CEO of ABC company gets caught up in the scandal, that kind of bleeds down to you a little bit and, and companies being aware of that. Extrapolate that to the, the financial aspects of it and, and talking about how tricky it, uh, third-party relationships may be in the future. There's a trend. There's trends right now. And I think some EU regulations are starting to, to be uh, either discussed or, or, or negotiated now where if you're in a high pollutant industry, you may have no access to working capital. Mm-hmm. Banks may be forbidden from lending money to you. Wow. So think about that. Yeah, that's going to that's going to really put a hurting on all those uh, container ships going across the ocean. Container ships and the oil industry, energy, energy industry in general, that's uh, fossil fuel based Mm -hmm. Uh, along those same lines. You know, as as a as a company, you're under constant pressure to, you know, maintain low margins and all that. So 
you may be compelled to look for widgets, your your widgets uh, on an online data, you know, online vendor who looks great and all like that. But if, if you order those widgets and they show up at the United States port and it turns out they're a certain, from a certain province in China mm-hmm. that's known for slave labor, mm-hmm. those widgets are not making it into the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, and then in terms of just sanctions, to give you a point of reference. So a few years ago, we were doing a really good job. Uh, we were checking, I think, six sanctions lists simultaneously. And if you're not familiar, a sanctions list is a list of businesses that the government puts out that says, we don't want you to do business with these businesses. And d- normally they're you know, terrorist organizations or associated with terrorist organizations, narcotics, traffickers, arms dealers, human rights abusers, people you don't want to do or companies you don't want to do business with anyway. Some of them are very obvious, but then some of them are not. Right. Well, but yeah, and they're getting better because... You know, Al-Qaeda doesn't have a store called Al-Qaeda and right. Things, right? Right, right? But they may have a front company that's, you know, uh, Kevin Sasser Consulting, you know, something along those lines. And so we've seen the number of sanctions lists that we've, we're, we've expanded the number of sanctions lists. We're checking to 30 or 30 more plus. Mm-hmm. And so 2020 taught us a lot of things. Basically, the entire business ecosystem is interconnected. If it wasn't obvious before, it should be obvious now. You know, a trucking company in Arkansas went out of business six months ago, and five paper mill plants had to shut down because they couldn't get lumber. Mm. That's that's the epitome. And so where we're going is because our type of technologies and innovations like that, that a level of insight to, to allow businesses to make more informed okay. decisions on who to do business with is just going to continue to get better, faster, so, more expansive. So perhaps in the future, I'm looking at doing uh, some kind of uh, a partnering deal with ABC company. They might be my downstream customer. They could be my upstream supplier. And I'm looking at the future of Argos Risk. And now it's no longer just about their business health score, the fact that they're an 87 and there's no adverse news or whatever about them. Now now there's there's all kinds of interesting things about their location, how, where they're where they're located, what kind of business they're in, and perhaps even some of these tangential, who they do business with, these second, third level, right? And all of that now factors into overall risk, whereas we think about, oh, are they financially healthy or sound? Is their CFO uh, just, you know, been brought up on charges that, that they were stealing money, right? You know, we sort of think about those right. things. But now, as we go in the future, there's a lot more tangential things that could come in and actually be something that would be important for me to know if I'm going to do business with a with another company. Right. And to give you, and again, kind of using another point of reference from uh, Slabber, I was reading the poor enterprise risk management trends. The takeaway from it was that the majority of breaches that you've heard about and the names that have gotten associated. So, mm-hmm. you know, Target had a breach and then uh, Citibank and blah, blah, blah. And the list goes on and on. The majority of the breaches you hear about were not caused by the brand. It wasn't caused by Target, per se. It was caused by one of Target's vendors. Vendors. Suppliers. Right, right. The, the people so, coming in to do some kind of maintenance on the card machine. Right, card yeah, machines. Yeah. And they had to log in to the portal right. so they could get paid. Right. And then, blah, blah, blah. You know, if you want to think about that being one of the key pain points that we're going to follow, that's going to be one of the key pain points yeah. we're following is helping, you know, that 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 perimeter of risk management best pr- practices expand um, from your business to your ecosystem, to your vendors, your vendors, vendors, and all that. So that's that's our mission. There. Sure. And then similarly, how people consume uh, a service like Argus Risk. Uh, do you see in the future more and more people coming and using your service just right off the web? Like they can go in, they can sign up with you, they can put their companies in and they have a dashboard and they, you know, they can access that directly with their own user ID and password. Or you have a very robust API that allows this information to be integrated into their experience. And so now you have this sort of software as a service and the ability for them to use that in other innovative ways. As time goes on, do you see more and more entities that are integrating what you guys are doing into something else and making even additional use of it, maybe very uh, specific to their particular industry? Or do you still see that that uh, very clean dashboard that you guys offer on the website still being the, the primary way that people consume that business intelligence? So for the for the small to mid-sized business, I, I, we do offer a SaaS model. It can be self, uh, you can self-enroll. And it's a it's a nice clean dashboard for 
you know, a, a, a one person or a small team to, to leverage to, to keep on on top of your third party relationships. When we get to, let's say, mid market enterprise market that, you know, where the the teams now measure in the dozens or the hundred, the size of the teams, dozens or hundreds, we're seeing more and more of our scores being ingested by other third party systems, either uh, ERM or vendor management system, or in some cases, business intelligence on a, on a consistent basis, because they're mixing our data in with some other internal data to build our more enhanced uh, risk profile. Very specific to their industry. And, yeah. and again, that's where instead of them coming to you and saying, hey, go build us this one off widget and da, 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 da. You're like, hey, here, you, you can license all of this data to us and you can go create your own special view of things with other information that you have. And so, again, obviously, a little small company may not have the resources to do that. But that, again, that's not an expensive thing to do with uh, Argos Risk. And you have a, a, some great examples of companies that do ex- exactly that. That's exactly yeah. right. Yes. Yeah. Let me just share here. I, I did mention uh, just a moment ago that some companies are small and they may not have the ability uh, to do the kind of, of technique that I was just discussing there with Kevin. But this idea of the way that you allow people to use your products and services and get a tailored experience is pretty important. Now, you know, if you manufacture uh, parts, you know, that fix air conditioners, okay, that this may not apply, but most of us are in some type of service business. My particular background is in software. So when we talk about SaaS, software as a service, what we're basically saying is, is I can put out a piece of software and I can uh, put a web page up and I can uh, provide you with a very robust user interface that you can access and go in and, and do whatever my product does and, and derive benefit from it. But if I can provide you a back-end API, a uh, application in a programming interface, something that allows you to get access on the back end. Now you can take data in that's not in the format of the user interface that I display, say on the web, but now I'm giving you data elements or insight that you can actually integrate into your own experience. So now a company can tailor an experience and really uh, enrich it in a way that perhaps just looking at a website would not. So start thinking about the products and services that you provide and saying, are we able to provide a way for people to consume the things that we do in a manner that most benefits them? And if so, wouldn't that be valuable? And if it's valuable, isn't that something that we can derive economic benefit from? Think about the, that this idea of as we go forward in the future, more and more uh, individuals and companies looking to consume services are looking to do so in a tailored way, not just in a standard way or a way that a company thinks that their services should be consumed. So here we're kind of coming down to the uh, to the end here. And I always like to wrap up these uh, podcasts when I get to talk with industry experts like yourself. And, and I, I talk about what advice would you give to innovators? So maybe you know, maybe out there listening is a is, is somebody who's the equivalent of a of a young Kevin Sasser. Maybe they're a CS student, you know, about to graduate from Georgia Tech or some other August uh, university, and they're going to go out into the world. Or all, all of these young people have ideas about innovating and coming up with products and, and everything else. What's sort of your general advice that you would have for people that are coming out, whether they want to start their own company or whether they just want to be a part of, you know, a vibrant and exciting industry? How are you? advocating or what what is the sasser sage providing to these young people that they're going to sit at your knee and look at you with awe because you're sharing such wisdom with them okay so that yeah, wisdom that was derived by uh, more mistakes than successes you know which are the best which is the best type of wisdom because i still have the scars to well, that, prove, that's right? why they need a lot of these young people don't make mistakes they're you know, uh, they're, they're, perfect they're perfect in every so, way so they need this they need this desperately so uh so i have two uh I have two kids that are both college age. One's out, one's uh, just starting her senior year at Georgia Tech. And I've bought them both the same book, and it's The Innovator's Dilemma. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, get it off Amazon. It was written back in the 90s, so it's a little bit dated in terms of the story and the, and the, the references, but the, just the concepts itself are solid. I, re- I If I could, when I rule the world, every kid coming out of college is going to have to read that book. And then if you are in a position where you have to drive innovation or manage innovation or you're looking for ideas on how to innovate, I would encourage you to check out an organization called Product Camp. It's uh, productcamp.org. And what this is, this is it's free. I'll start with that. 
But this is a, uh, it's a, it's a community. It's actually a global community now, but they have localized chapters. Like there's a product camp Atlanta, there's a product camp San Diego, where product professionals meet on an annual basis and for a conference and they get together, collaborate, share ideas, uh, swap stories. And it's probably one of the smartest things I ever did in my life was getting involved with that organization. So productcamp.org is nothing to register, nothing to sign up. You, there's local chapters, highly recommend it. Nice. And I'll give you an idea of a, some bits of nuggets that I acquired from this, uh, this uh, from Product Camp. In fact, this is coming from another good friend of mine. Going back to my Atlanta startup days, my friend had a idea for a new social media platform for sports teams. Mm-hmm. Him and his co-founder sketched out the, the the fundamentals of it and understand what the product was going to do, how the resources to build, and they were going to need a half a million dollars in startup capital, and neither one of them could take a salary for eighteen months. Mm-hmm. And by the way, if you're if you're dreaming about starting your own business, that's the kind of stuff you have to do. Luckily, through uh, uh, they were able to con- secure meetings with just about uh, all the colleges in the ACC and all the colleges in the SEC to their director of social media marketing. So they put together this pitch presentation. They went through and had a face-to-face and blah, 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 blah. And when they came back, they decided not to launch the company. The nugget of knowledge and the brilliance of this was this. In their pitch presentations, they didn't pitch what the uh, product would do. They pitched the exact opposite of what the product would do. Okay. And what the goal was is if if I'm pitching you a social media platform and I want to see how important it is to you, I'm going to tell you and say, okay, instead of broadcasting this message out to all of your followers, it's going to pick 10% just send them the, send the message and they can't like it, share it, or comment on it. What do you think about that? Yeah. yeah. And what they were looking for, if it was an important topic, they were looking for anger and, oh, my God, my boss is going to kill me and blah, 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 blah. You're crazy. Nothing. They're like, yeah, well, my boss really didn't. He really doesn't care. Or she didn't. You know, he or she doesn't care. Right. Okay. And they came back. It's like, okay, this is not a problem that's important enough for people to spend money to solve. Right. No, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Yeah. And so, you know, stuff like that, you get to meet uh, a lot of uh, good professionals who are going through the same struggles as you yeah. uh, and, and share nuggets of wisdom like you. If you're not near a product camp organization, just a couple of words of wisdom for you. Innovation needs to be driven by a problem, not potential revenue. That's mm-hmm. probably the second most common mistake. And hey, we can go make all this money if we do this. And it's like, well, are you solving a problem? Bolt number two, people who like you or love you will lie to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, hey, mom, I've got this great idea. Oh, you're so handsome. I think it's going to be great. You're, you're not going to be able to raise money off that, right? <laughs> and then finally, if you're not embarrassed by your first version of anything, you waited too long to release it. Mm. Nice. So, and so you had the best piece of blackmail material on me ever because you have a video recording of the, my first time ever public speaking. That's true. That's true. And I would... I would move heaven and earth to make sure that never gets released into the public. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs> see, I'm fortunate. It's my first, uh, my first public speaking experience is not recorded to my knowledge. So I'm, so I'm safer, but, but you're right. And we had this happen all the time at Goldleaf where, where I was pushing to be finished is better than perfect. Because a lot of times everyone's striving to get, Oh no, 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 We can make it better. we we'll make it better. It's like, you got to get it out there and get it used. Cause no matter what you think, uh, its utility is going to be until people actually start using it. You don't really know. You don't really get the kind of feedback that you have until people are hands on. And whether that's a piece of software or whether it's somebody who's you can stand in front of a mirror all you want. And, and by the way, for those of you listening who have a people will tell you like, oh, my gosh, you you're a great speaker. You, you should you should be a, a professional speaker or whatever. I encourage you. And Kevin, if he wanted to, could be a full time uh, professional speaker. And I've been very blessed to be a professional speaker. But just like every other job, it's hard. You know, <laughs> you think about it as being, oh my gosh, it's amazing, whatever else. It's a hard business. And until you get out there and go get up in front of the Kiwanis Club and talk or, or you know, get the reps in, like Kevin's suggesting, you don't ever really improve your game. Yeah, yeah. Well, listen, Kevin, this, is, uh, this has been uh, really amazing. It's been a little bit of a walk down amnesia lane for us. So we got a chance to kind of 
think back to some of those fun days uh, at Goldleaf. Speaking of not putting video out, I mentioned earlier in the podcast that over the years, especially at Goldleaf, we created a library, I guess the only word to say it, of goofy videos, you know, fake commercials and parodies, taking all of the popular culture of the day, you know, are you, oh, are you an expert? No, but I stayed at Holiday Inn Express. Whatever it was that was sort of popular of the day, we somehow converted that into something goofy or a little bit, you know, odd related to payments. And just as you said earlier, it's like, how do you take something that's inherently not fun and exciting. And we, we made it exciting. So over the years, I've had a lot of people ask me, because I have a, a, an archive of that video. Some of it's like old, old stuff on like VHS tapes. Some of you on the podcast have to go look up what a VHS is. And, you know, we can convert all that to digital and put it out there. And then um, a few years back, I had the, I had the opportunity to be a, an expert witness in a case where you go and testify in court. And so, uh, and, and I've actually been able to do that now several times. And so I got to thinking about it. It's like, if you're on the stand and if you're an expert talking about electronic payments and the opposing attorney gets up and says, Mr. Peterson, you consider yourself to be a professional in electronic payments, you know, electronic bank? Well, yes, sir. Well, let's go look at this video. <laughs> and then there's, you know, me and Kevin doing this. The, uh, what was the one of the earlier videos we did is the two of us and I had on like this. I don't know, plus fours or whatever. Like I was this British guy. And in the back in the day, there was this commercial for car wax and there were all these goofy things. And we were basically comparing ACH electronic banking software and basically creating a parody commercial, selling it like it was car wax. And it was so, I mean, the production value was like, we didn't have the kind of editing software. I mean, we had more fun doing that. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what if, what if that showed up in a courtroom? So maybe just maybe Kevin, we won't put any of those videos there. out there. It'll just, it'll just be, uh, it'll just be our, our secret to reminisce about. I will. Uh, you have just given me total tranquility on my deathbed. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> well, listen, everyone. Uh, we've been uh, excited to uh, spend a few minutes here with Kevin Sasser, Director of Sales and Marketing Argos Risk. Again, you can go find out more information at www.argosrisk.com. The references that Kevin made to the innovator's dilemma and the, um, I'm sorry, was the product camp, product camp. You'll see those links in the, uh, uh, in the show notes on there. So you'll be able to go directly and look at those links. And, uh, Kevin, any last, uh, any last words for our IDG listeners? Oh, well, uh, number one, thank you for uh, the time today. And in terms of innovation, I would have to say innovation, a good innovation usually occurs a lot easier than forced innovation. So uh, look, you know, there's nothing wrong with chasing early successes and low hanging fruit. Start there if you have no idea where else to turn and just keep at it. It's a it's an ever, ever evolving process. Awesome. Again, thanks, Kevin. Appreciate it. Anytime. Take care. Thanks again for investing your valuable time listening to the Innovation Driven Growth podcast. I covet your questions, comments, or critique. You can reach me at david at davidpeterson.com. I'm also on Facebook at DP Speaks and everywhere else on social media at DLP Speaks. I look forward to hearing from you and be sure to look for a new episode soon.